Hello and welcome to our inaugural History West Midlands podcast focusing on the Black Country, or the dark region as it's sometimes called. And through my conversation over the forthcoming months with a variety of guests, we'll be drilling down into the very heart of the area, its history, inhabitants and its culture. And we intend that these broadcasts will not only entertain and inform our listeners, but will collectively build the basis of an archive that will prove an invaluable resource for anyone wishing to know more about this great powerhouse of the Industrial Revolution, and which in more contemporary times is in so many ways still a beacon to the world. And we set the scene by seeking to answer some uh, pretty fundamental questions. Where is the black country? What defines it? What's its history? Who are its people? And what make it so special to those, including me, who proudly claim that I am from the black country? We have the observations of one man in particular to start us on our journey. Elihu Burritt, 1810 to 1879, was born in Connecticut. And from humble origins, he rose to become American consul and was posted to what is now known as the West Midlands area of England. Now, he saw part of his role to ingrain himself into the local culture and report back to these taskmasters in an effort to promote mutual understanding. And his seminal book, Walks in the Black Country in its Green Borderland, first published in 1868, is a stylized but highly detailed study of the landscape and its people that remains to this day an elegiac portrait of the black country in its early days as an industrial powerhouse. The first line of the very first chapter reads, and I quote, the black country, black by day and red by night, cannot be matched for vast and varied production by any other space of equal radius on the surface of the globe. It is a section of titanic industry kept in murky perspiration by sturdy sets of tubal chains and Vulcans, week in, week out, and often seven days to the week. Indeed, the Sunday evening halo it wears when the church bells are ringing to service on winter nights, glow redder than the moon, or like the moon dissolved, in its full on the clouds above the roaring furnaces. I'm joined by uh, Dr Trevor Raybold, a Tiptonian by extraction who can trace his family roots right across the black country, and an honest author, teacher and lecturer. He holds a doctorate for his research on the Dudley Estate manuscripts uh, for 1774 to 1947, and is both a founder member and past president of the Black Country Society. Uh, Michael Pearson's a retired police officer. He's also a leading light in the Black Country Society, where he currently edits the society's magazine, The Black Countryman, and is the society's webmaster. His titles include Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths Around the Black Country, uh, with David Cox, Tracing Your Black Country Ancestors, and The Little Book of the Black Country. Dr Malcolm Dick, he is Director of the Centre for West Midlands History and Lecturer in Regional and Local History at the University of Birmingham. He's also editor of the magazine History West Midlands. He lives in the Black Country and is particularly interested in the diverse history of the area. Welcome to all three of you. Now, it's uh, both significant and fitting that uh, seeing as we're broadcasting here right from the very depths of the Black Country Living Museum here in uh, Tipton Road, Dudley, that Malcolm, as a trustee of the museum, Perhaps you could give us an indication as to the raison d'etre of the museum and where it fits in within Black Country Society. Well, the Black Country Living Museum is a remarkable place. It's one of the few Black Country-wide institutions. It was established in the 1960s to provide a record of a past that appeared to be disappearing, the industrial and social history of many Black Country communities. But it's much more than a vehicle for nostalgia. It's developed into a museum of world importance, which provides an insight into a very rich industrial, technological and social history, ranging from 
the activities of working class individuals to commemorating the achievements of technologists. There's a very important reconstruction in the museum of the Newcomen engine, which was possibly the first one used in the area. And it provides a dynamic group of curators, marketing people, volunteers, people who provide lots of activities for schools and members of the community to gain an insight into a remarkably rich and diverse history. Thank you for that. So we're looking to tackle some uh, quite fundamental questions as to what and where is the black country? Uh, how is it defined? How's that definition altered over time, perhaps? And how is it now even recognised on maps? The three gentlemen in front of me who've all got their own views on that. Let's start off with you, Trevor Raybould. This is the ultimate conundrum, this, what and where. Isn't it just? When is obviously <laughs> meshed into it. But from my point of view, given the nature of what the black country became a major centre of mineral and iron production and then the related trades, I would say it has to be determined by the South Staffordshire coalfield boundaries. Now, these don't conveniently fit into traditional county or town limits and certainly not into modern metropolitan borough boundaries. We have to go by the geological boundaries from southeast of Wolverhampton to the edge of Walsall, that's the northern boundary fault, the Bentley fault, that is. And if you come down from on the eastern side, it's an S sort of boundary, passing the edge of West Bromwich, and to Hales-Owen, that's the eastern boundary fault, and there's the Hales-Owen boundary fault from Hales-Owen to Amblecote, and then the famous western boundary fault, which runs from roughly Amblecote up to eastern Wolverhampton. So that gives us an area of roughly... 16 miles by 10 miles. Dr Malcolm Dick, what's your definition of the black country? Well, I think the term black country is a very interesting one. It's not one that emerged from within the black country itself. It's a label that appears to have been developed by people from outside. The first use of the term, at least in a published book, is by the Reverend William Gresley in a children's story, Colton Green, A Tale of the Black Country. And he describes the black country as a dismal region of mines and forges. Burritt's approach is somewhat different. He talks about the black country and its green borderland. That's never quite clear where the green borderland starts because much of the black country was still green in Burritt's time. And he doesn't seem to make a distinction between Birmingham and the black country economically. In fact, many of the industries in the black country, like chances, but they weren't the only one, described themselves as being located in or near Birmingham rather than in a black country locality. So... It's an external label that appears to have been first used in 1846. There's a, an overlooked piece of text about the black country by James Keir. He produced a remarkably detailed description of the geology and economic geography of the black country, which was published in Stebbing Shaw's History of Staffordshire in 1798, when 
he describes in detail the integration of a developing transport system based on canals with coal mining, with iron working and with nail making. There's an integrated economy developing which partly has a cultural definition, partly has a geographical definition, uh, partly has a geological definition. It's very difficult to pin down, but like many terms that are meant as a form of abuse, if you like, and the term black country had negative connotations, it's been absorbed to give people in the four boroughs of the black country a kind of collective identity, but whether they're happy about that is a debatable point. Well, as a black countryman myself, uh, <laughs> as you may gather, I was uh, more than pleased to see within the last few years that the name has actually been recognised on Ordnance Survey maps. But even so, it's still just uh, spread across the Ordnance Survey map. This still must be one of the few areas in the country which is indefinable by a line around a boundary. And uh, it's interesting we have uh, two experts who have given two separate opinions on what it constitutes, and uh, McPherson, I have a feeling you're about to give me a third. I am. I'm going to concur in the sense of the traditional boundary. In 1967, the Black Country Society used that boundary of the land which lies over the 30-foot-thick Staffordshire coal seam, and it was defined in an 1836 map. There are some anomalies, Warsaw, Smethwick and Wolverhampton being three of those. I go with today, in the 21st century, perhaps a more Catholic view and take in the fact that the black country cuts across the four local authorities, albeit some people would say that they are not part of the black country, even though they're in Wolverhampton, Warsaw, Sandwell or Dudley. The last one is a metaphoric border, which I'll throw in for good measure and to stir a little bit of controversy. If you identify yourself as having good black country ancestors with roots in the region and you believe you are a black country mon or black country woman, then you probably are. <laughs> I feel that's about as close we're going to get to nailing that one. Uh, so uh, thank you for your contributions on that. But back to Burrit and uh, his purple observation on our fair land of two centuries ago or so. Uh, let me turn to you first, Trevor Raybold, and ask you to set the scene for our uh, discussion by placing Burritt's observations in the context of his day at the time. What, in essence, were the key factors in the area he was describing in getting it to reach that stage of uh, fiery hell from what was presumably green fields and uh, a verdant lands only uh, a short time before his description? It is indeed a lurid description, but it's only a small snapshot of a very large canvas which had taken a hundred years to emerge. I think there are five ingredients which brought the black country into existence. And first of all, there are the physical characteristics of it. It's a plateau area relatively isolated in the beginning of the 18th century, and it was sitting on top of the South Staffordshire coalfield, which was one of the richest in the country. The second ingredient was that it became very heavily industrialised from a relatively greenfield site. After 1760 and by 1820, the die was cast in terms of what constituted the original black country. Uh, the third point I'd make would be to try and answer why then. Its context is the National Industrial Revolution, which of course affected the development of this area. Three, 
innovations in particular brought the area into existence. One was the artificial cut, one was the mineral blast furnace, and the other was the puddling furnace. The fourth point I would make is that it's not just an industrial area that's emerging, it is the rapidity of the expansion in terms of population. The national increase in population was roughly double, 1800 to 1850. In the case of the black country towns, it varies between 400 and 600%, and yet the condition of life was awful. They died like flies. And the final and fifth point I would make is that the description of Burrit in many ways was building on echoing many earlier comments about the area from perhaps people like Thomas Carlyle in 24, Naismith, 1830, William Cobbett in 1830, and William Hawke Smith, who attempted to put it on the map in 1838. Well, thank you for that very comprehensive answer to that, Trevor. We have already a picture of an area that's attracting people here by their droves for new industries, and although they're dying like flies, as you put it, they are still attracted here. Mick Pearson, let me quiz you on what you feel were the attractions here and how people coming here differed from across the border in, say, the population of Birmingham. I think for the black country, it was, as Trevor's pointed out, the holy trinity to start with of coal, iron and limestone that was the bedrock forgive the pun, of and the black countries, well. and fire clay as well, without which we couldn't have had the furnaces. We're going back to the days of the agricultural labourer in many of the counties surrounding the black country were being cut down in the sort of work that they could do by new innovations in farming techniques and in general work on farms. So there was less work and it was also seasonal work. So some of that immigration into the black country was of ag labs, agricultural labourers coming in. As mining developed in the black country, many miners came from traditional mining areas in Wales and other parts of the country. So the population ingress, if you like, was of people looking for work. If you didn't work, there was no welfare state, you would starve. Is that where they also brought in the skill sets with them? Because we have, on the one hand, uh, agricultural labourers, perhaps ill-educated, I don't want to be pejorative, but most likely were. But we also have the introduction of very high skill values in the steelworks, the glassworks, uh, the mines. How did that come about? Where did they originate from? In some respects, we invented some of them. We were great inventors in the black country. You can go back to Dud Dudley who is said to have perfected the smelting using coal instead of charcoal. So we were innovators in the black country. We had to be. You know, we couldn't use the woods such as Pensnet Chase because we'd already used them. So I think we had to be innovators. People had to learn. People came into already established trades on occasion. So, for example, there's writing about nail makers. When new nail makers came in or new workers came in to work in the nail trade, they had to take on the persona of a black country nail maker in places like the Lie Waste and Hales Owen and Cradley. So they had to learn the lingo, the dialect, which is another important facet of black country life. And they assimilated themselves into the communities that grew up. And that's another one of Trevor's points, is about the overcrowding, the poor living conditions, the high mortality rates that meant that Yes, we got more people coming in, but we needed more people because they were dying. At some parts of Cates Hill, life expectancy was as low as 18. 
The uh, ingress of skills was more than just an individual idea. This had to be a mass movement of some description within the population. And what I'd like to drill into is whether these skills came in to take advantage of what was here or whether there's an element that the landscape and the nature of the geology and, and what is the black country forged those skills from the people who came in, in the first place. Would that be a fair comment? I think I would go with your latter and say that the materials were here, the desire and the need for the work was here. We'd got a market for the goods, especially during the period of the British Empire. We were supplying all sorts of materiel to help further the boundaries of the empire, and it, where it said the sun never set, bridges to Australia, railroads to India, and so on and so forth. They're just two broad brush examples, chances with their glassworks and the lighthouses around the world. Just small examples. Malcolm, you uh, want to come in on that? One of the things we ought very strongly to bear in mind about the history of the black country that we can only understand it in relation to its relationships with places around it, not least of all Birmingham. The history of Birmingham and the black country industrially cannot very easily be separated. The development and rapid growth of Birmingham in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries depended upon a very close relationship with the local area. For example, importing iron from the Wensbury region. The transport geography of the two areas was closely integrated by the development of the canal system. The difference really is that Birmingham developed as a large entity by absorbing places around it, whereas the black country's history is very much based on a series of local areas which have retained their very close identity, which was both industrial and social. The black country did supply raw materials to Birmingham industry, but has already been mentioned, places like Stourbridge developed a very distinctive glass industry, you had Bilston enamels, you had locks in Willenhall, you had gun making in Wensbury. There are a whole series of local industries, which in a sense, Burrett's description somewhat bypasses because there was a high-tech, high-skill dimension to black country production which parallels what was happening in Birmingham in many respects. I want to go back to Burritt and go down a little deeper into his mindset here. But I know, Malcolm, that you have got some uh, observations on the fact that we were actually considered subhuman by one writer. One of the interesting things that strike observers when they come to the black country is the point that Burritt stressed. It was black by day and red by night. This concentration of smoke, foundries, coal mining, filth, and the effect this appeared to have on the population, a population almost like troglodytes who emerged out of the ground and appeared to be a different type of humanity from those elsewhere. And these middle-class observers simply categorised the area very, very negatively. Naismith, the inventor of the steam hammer, came to the area as a young man and there's 
a very extensive description that he makes of the black country when he visited. In 1830 it was that James Naismith walked from Colebrookdale to the black country and he said, I proceeded at once to Dudley. The black country is anything but picturesque. The earth seems to have been turned inside out. Its entrails are strewn about. Nearly the entire surface of the ground is covered with cinder heaps and mounds of scoria. The coal which has been drawn from below ground is blazing on the surface. The district is crowded with iron furnaces, bottling furnaces and coal pit engine furnaces. By day and by night the country is glowing with fire and the smoke of the ironworks hovers over it and so on for several more paragraphs. He talks about workmen covered with smut and with fierce white eyes are seen moving about amongst the glowing iron and the dull thud of forge hammers. Later on, he talks about individuals who seem to be running about amidst the flames, as in a pandemonium, while around and outside the horizon was a glowing belt of fire, making even the stars look pale and feeble. It's a form of hell, and these workers are part of that process. They're almost dehumanised by their activity. It becomes very much like... Morder, the scene in Lord of the Rings that Tolkien described, and he may well have seen this area at the turn of the 19th and 20th century and imported his views into his description within his novels. The very first railway guide to the area, Osborne's Guide in 1838, when the Grand Junction Railway from London to Birmingham and on to Liverpool coinciding with the penetration of Africa by intrepid early Victorian explorers, describes the appearance of the natives, my word, the women of Wensbury who help to load or unload at the mouth of the pit, lose that natural pleasantness and gracefulness of appearance which is common to their sex. This is particularly observable in the extreme width of their mouths, the shortness of their necks and the breadth of their shoulders, caused by carrying baskets of coal on their heads. Horne's report on the employment of children in 1841 describes a Sunday morning scene, this is in Wolverhampton, with many adults standing with folded comments on the thresholds of their houses Sunday morning, with an air of lazy vacancy. That would take some practice. And the way they speak, the language of the natives could scarcely be understood by strangers. See, both of my uh, compatriots there are nodding furiously, want to go with Malcolm. These were observations from outsiders yeah. who found the society extremely strange and alien. There was little reference point for them culturally and socially other than the place where they worked. And what is not observed so readily is the set of structures and communities that black country people established. What is often the case in large parts of the black country is an absence of an aristocracy and an absence of major units of local government. You get a kind of frontier town mentality in many of these areas where you've got little in the way of established modes of law and order so what do people do? Well, it seems to me a number of things happen. One that's very important is the way in which nonconformist religion, in particular Methodism, but not only Methodism, becomes a very strong force in the black country. 
And we can still see today the importance of Methodist chapels and Baptist chapels, many of which still survive, often like stranded whales in 20th century housing estates. But these became remarkably important systems of identity where people could establish a community, obtain an education, represent themselves to other organisations and provide an alternative to what was often a very desperately unpleasant set of working experiences. The pub comes to that context as well. The pub is a secular institution which provides a form of identity. And again, we can see a large number of surviving pubs in the black country that date from the period of industrialization. And then the rich tradition of social organizations like the Odd Fellows and the Order of Moose and so on. These were friendly societies providing a form of self-help for working class communities. This social side, if you like, the positive social side, was neglected by the observers. They didn't see this because it was internal. Nodding sagely in agreement there, Mick Pearson. We have this high death rate, and a lot of that was down to the fact that there weren't any local authorities looking after the health and welfare of the residents. And if we take Dudley as an example, the town commissioners would regularly not agree to improve the water supply because they were the ratepayers who would be paying the money from their rates to actually do the improvements. The other thing I'd like to say is that it wasn't just 19th century observers that came to look at the black country. In 1741, a man who I believe came from Birmingham called Hutton said that he was surprised by the number of blacksmith shops. In some of those shops observed one or more females stripped of their upper garment and not overcharged with their lower, wielding the hammer with all the grace of the sex. The beauties of their faces were rather eclipsed by the smut of the anvil. I suspect we're almost like a modern-day zoo or menagerie to people from perhaps what were perceived as more advanced places such as Birmingham. And there are a number of people, as you've alluded to, in the 19th century, but this, of course, was the 18th century. We all have rice smiles on our faces at the, uh, the graphic description you've uh, created there for us. But, of course, this was a serious life-threatening business, let us not forget. Yes, that. it was a reality. Trevor Abel. Where you were born was where you lived. You never went beyond, perhaps, a quarter of a mile in any direction. Where you were born, in whatever hovel, was where you worked. It's where you worshipped, if you were lucky to have a Baptist chapel or a Methodist chapel. It's um, where you drank and socialised, and the pub was more than a place where you socialised. You had to go to the pub in order to ensure you got a job next week because the gang masters owned the pubs and the beer shops. And if you didn't run up something on a slate by midnight on Saturday, you didn't get a job next week. Brings us to the drunkenness of the black country people. The pub was a place to drink. It's a place where you went to earn the goodwill of the gaffer. And the black countrymen didn't work seven or six days in the week. If the miner made a good amount of money, he was paid about midnight on a Saturday, He'd worked until four o'clock in the afternoon, wouldn't go to church on Sunday. He would also celebrate St. Monday 
and Saint Tuesday, and on a good week, he'd celebrate Saint Wednesday, and he'd go back to work on the Thursday. And the women, of course, had to fight to get the money to feed the family. So drunkenness was endemic, and drink and work were enmeshed. And also, of course, just to finish on this point, the furnace owners and the forge owners supplied beer, as did the pit owners, not out of the good of their hearts, but to keep the men alive, perspiring profusely in this arduous environment. I think we've established the basis of the black country psyche there and uh, what made that aspect uh, so important to the area compared with elsewhere. Mick, and first you, Malcolm, just bookend Trevor's comments there, please. Yes, well, the identity is almost very much at a street level within the black country, certainly very much a sub-district level rather than identity around uh, what we might call a town. I come from King Swinford, I yes. come from Starbridge, I come from Conigree Tipton. You, you, you very rarely, if ever, you suddenly say, I come from Acox Green or Kings Norton. I, I come from Birmingham. Yes. It's more generic, isn't in it? In Birmingham, it seems to be different, and it's very difficult to explain that. But I think it because in Birmingham, development expanded from the centre outwards, whereas in the black country, you've got a, a series of different localities all of which had distinctive economic identities, which then expanded within their own particular area. And so you've got a degree of tension building up between these places and a strong sense of local identity, which is still there, whereas I don't sense the same as the case in Birmingham. On a slightly lighter note, I suppose, and a personal example of this parochialism within the black country, my wife's mother was born and bred in Collygate, a small settlement. You could pass it on your way to Stourbridge without realising you'd passed it. And she had the temerity to marry a man from Netherton, about two and a half, three miles away. Her mother refused to talk to her for a good six months because she'd married a foreigner. Right, we've established there a lot of uh, distinctions and indeed similarities with our neighbours. I want to take the discussion into the 21st century and beyond, maybe. But uh, what's uh, been our influence over the past, say, 150 years? Trevor Abel. Our influence over the last 150 years, where do we get back to? 1850-ish. So... Really, we've reached the end of the first classic industrial revolution. In the case of the black country, its fortunes withered somewhat in terms of the output of the mines. They were becoming exhausted. And, of course, the great virtue of the black country's economy was the wrought iron production, the raw material for everything else. But in 1850-ish, mild steel comes along. Black country ironstone didn't fit into the pattern of that. So it's in decline. The two major wars of the 20th century revived its fortunes somewhat, but the pits and the traditional ironworks were gradually scaling down and have virtually disappeared in our own generation. The legacies left by the mineral lines, the engineering works, bridges, harbour installations and so on, right across the British Empire and in other areas like Argentina, for example. That is a legacy of the black country, there is a legacy of hard work and iron-working skills which have never died, and the revival of the car trade in Birmingham and Coventry is once more bringing work to the traditional stampers and forgers and millers of the black country in the current decade. So what is the future for the black country? 
Where are we going? What's going to be our contribution over the next 25, 50 years, Mick? Well, we're still one of the largest exporters in the country, second or third, I believe. So we're still producing goods. We're still outsourcing for raw materials now. We have to import those or bring them in from other parts of the country. But we are still major exporters. Our population of the black country, if we take the four boroughs, is larger than Birmingham. The sad fact is what we can't do today is pinpoint the large and major industrial areas such as the Round Oak Hickman's in Bilston and other large centres. What we've got now is a lot of smaller, more specialised, bespoke companies and factories making the stuff that we are exporting worldwide still. Certainly as someone who's lived in the black country since the late 1980s, it's clear to me that physically it looks cleaner, physically it looks more prosperous, there appears to be less dereliction. There's obviously a huge amount of poverty still in the area, and a considerable amount of educational underachievement. The educational history of the black country is not a particularly proud one compared to other areas. The black country is now primarily a residential area. A lot of house building has taken place in the 20th and 21st century. There's tourism, which actually takes the black country back to its 18th century roots as a region. People came to the black country to travel on the canals and to go underneath Dudley Castle on the canal in the 18th century. Which they still do to this day, Which they still do to this day. There's the possibility of developing that further. And we come back to the importance of the Black Country Living Museum, an extremely dynamic institution which has survived with flying colours the effects of the recession and provides a beacon for the black country in the 21st century. And there we have it. (laughs) Food for thought on uh, what makes the area what it is. A near impossible task to identify completely, but I think we can agree that uh, my guests have gone some considerable way in identifying what makes the black country so very, very special. Uh, My thanks to Dr Trevor Raybould, Mick Pearson and Dr Malcolm Dick for their contribution in getting the debate up in such a lively and informative way. And just a reminder, if you uh, want to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our podcasts, or simply get in touch or make a comment, then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and just following the relevant links. Uh, join me next time when we'll be exploring how coal and iron helped make the black country. Until then, enjoy your history. Thanks for listening.